0: They got a lot of chance to hear me. They don't get a lot of chance to hear you. So let's let's get you going here. Thank you for being willing to do this. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for Jessica. And, and what a, a wonderful servant of you that she is. Servant of the servant. Lord, we thank you that she has seen your heart and chosen to follow you. And And Lord, I just pray that what you've downloaded into her, what you've spoken into her, what you've poured into her, that you would empower her now to open her heart and share with us. And that you would empower us as listeners to receive, to hear, and to and to be shaped by your, your word and by your truth. Uh, and by those, Lord, who have wrestled with your truth before us. That we can glean from them and learn from them. Bless her uh, as she shares today and prepare our hearts as we... As we prepare to break bread together. In Jesus' name, amen. There you go. Thank you.
1: And how do I work this guy again? Which button am I looking for?
0: So, do you want to go forward? So, you just push down there. Okay. Ready to go?
1: All right. There you go. Beautiful. All right. Good morning. I've <sighs> <Good morning. sighs> got some butterflies going in my stomach, but I've got my security Bible not really going to read out of it, but it just makes me feel safe, so um, I want to start with some thank yous. Thank you to our friends Tim and Amy and Becky for coming out and supporting us. They're some of our best friends from Regent College and Vancouver Life, so thanks for braving a whole new world of Vancouver Eastside Vineyard, and thank you to Gordy and everybody for being willing to let me do this and talk and listen to me. Um, I definitely both... I don't feel old enough or mature enough, and from some of my background, man enough to be doing this. So, are a woman enough. All right. So let's get, let's, let's get moving. I've got a lot of wordy PowerPoint slides. Forgive me, people. Um, so yeah, we are talking about the lesser lights, and we've got the mamas and the papas in the desert, and this sermon is brought to you by Google Image Search. So um, we've got some pictures... Um, uh, an icon of some of the, the desert mothers and I just, I just like them all together hanging out in community and just the, the way that they are respected and venerated and they get their own icon and um, they're sort of a monastery one of the kind of communities they would live in in the desert and I mean that looks like a wonderful hospitable place to live um, so we're just going to find out what these people's deal is um, so where have we been this summer? Um, If I start talking too fast, just make some kind of hand motion at me. I do that sometimes. Um, We've talked about a lot of the lesser-known figures in the New Testament, um, stories of people who've been faithful in prayer and in ministry, in evangelism and teaching, um, some stories of really brave, wise women who broke the cultural mold and, and did some of these things. They were teachers. They... They, they had churches in their homes, um, and that's been really cool. Um, and then last week, um, my husband, Peter, who is my husband now because that happened this summer, which is kind of cool, um, gave <laughs> us a little overview of church history and of kind of what happened after the New Testament, um, which is something that doesn't get talked about in churches sometimes, is we kind of had the New Testament and then... Some weird stuff happened in the Middle Ages, we're kind of bad, and then the Reformation was good, and now we're here. And um, I think one of the things I picked up at Regent, and a lot of us do, is that actually God didn't just drop the ball after the New Testament, but the Spirit was doing things throughout history. And it's really cool to kind of to look at the, the hard things, but also the good things. Um, our family tree, the next generation of fathers and mothers who passed down the faith— the good news this is the story that we're all living in so um, all that takes us to where we're headed today a couple generations later um, around 300 AD and forward when um, a lot is changing in the world and in response some radical weird crazy Christian men and women are heading out to the Egyptian and other deserts to find God Why? Um, and this, these are the verses that Peter talked about last week, and I think it's a good theme verse for our mini-series, so I'm going to read it actually a couple times this morning. Um, so this is in the New International Version, um, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And um, yeah, there's a lot, a lot in this verse that I think is relevant to our lives and, and to the desert in general, in, in particular. But I was thinking, I don't really understand it. I'm not a runner. I hate running. I don't really jog, I like walking, I can swim, but um, so I don't really get this metaphor that well. And so I was looking for maybe some pictures, some examples to kind of make it real. Um, And so I did a Google image search for the words, run with perseverance, the race marked out. And within the top 60 results, I found the following. Joanna Pallister being awesome. (laughs) I was like, how can this not go in the PowerPoint slide? Hello. Um, and I actually was like, that's so cool. Like, Joanna running is actually a really great, because she's not really a runner either, but she did it. And that is perseverance, and that's beautiful. So those of us who know that story, I think it can kind of take us a little deeper into this passage. So I'm going to stop embarrassing her and move the picture. But, you know, nice I liked it. So... Um, New page of notes. You are stuck together. Thank you. Um, so, why these verses and why study church history anyway? Well, Hebrews 12 1 through 3 reminds us of several crucial truths. The first, and you can just, I have a lot of words, just pay attention to what's bold or underlined. We're not in this alone. We're surrounded by people who've gone before us and lived through this, and those who are around us now, around the world, and in the seats next to us and in our lives Um, and that's really important because it's really hard to do it alone And like Gordy talked about last week at baptism though none go with me I will follow but thank God that he goes with us and that we go with each other Um, so not only are our sisters and brothers and mothers and fathers in the faith cheering us on but so is Jesus he's the one who gave birth to our faith through the spirit and he sets the example of perseverance that we're following he's sort of at the front of the race and we're just chasing him and it's great so it's it's like a relay race we're living the same story that that jesus started and that the apostles kept going and if you remember the timeline from last week and the little arrows that just went on and on and on to the different generations so we've got the baton or the torch we're running and we're going to pass it forward um and I think that, that studying different figures from church history um, after the New Testament gives us a chance to learn from those who've run the race before us with the same resources that we have. Like, they didn't see Jesus face-to-face, just like we haven't. They have the scriptures, and they have the Spirit. So we study their examples of how they found their place in the story, and how did they live faithfully like, in their time and place and the struggles that they had. And we can gain wisdom from their examples as we navigate the confusion of our times and places. So why the desert? Well, one, I like the radical weird people in history because they're fun. <laughs> they're just kind of doing crazy things, and they're more interesting to study than of normal people. Thank you, Kenny. And, and they're responding to challenges and transitional sort of birth pangs in church and world history when things are going to change. And I think every generation has its its transitions. And I think we have our own challenges and and weird things in our world. So it's it's good to look at people who've been in those moments. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted to talk about some of the the mothers as well, because they don't get as much attention. And there's, there's a lot of them doing important things in history of the church. And even um, a lot of the, the guys that Peter talked about last week, like they were in correspondence with, through letters or through discussions, a lot of brilliant womanly iron who were kind of behind the scenes sharpening the big name manly iron like they, they didn't get famous but but those things that got written would have gotten written if they hadn't been in conversation with these women who were just as bright but didn't get to have the spotlight because of their culture um, but the desert mothers embody a lot of the characteristics of these varied examples of women in church history and so they make a good case study um, so the desert Amas and Abbas, as they would have been called in their time, are, are a prime example of running with perseverance, like in Hebrews. So we're going to read that verse again in a little different version, because sometimes when we read things, we forget about them. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. Okay, so the desert fathers and mothers, we're going to talk about them. What's their deal? Well, once upon a time, there was a little bitty giant superpower that ruled the old world called the Roman Empire. Dun, dun, dun. And as soon as they kind of found out about this whole Christianity thing, they started persecuting Christians. So that's sort of a map of the Roman Empire and how they ruled everything. And the bottom picture is Christians being persecuted and being fed to the lions in the Colosseum. And the dude is Emperor Diocletian, who... um, unleashed a pretty serious wave of persecution against Christians um, right around the time when the mothers and fathers were heading to the desert. Um, So by the time we reach about 300 AD, when they're heading to the desert, some things have started to change. Rome, the empire has started its long, slow decline from power. It'll eventually fall to ravaging barbarian hordes. Rar. However, in AD 313, Emperor Constantine embraced Christianity, kind of. Disputed, but um, he ended the persecution of Christians officially and instituted a policy of religious tolerance. But this also allowed him and therefore the Roman state a large degree of influence over the church and everything from building church buildings to um, doctrinal councils. So, like, the state could influence the teaching of the church. And so this starts sort of a complicated and hotly disputed relationship between the empire and the church. Was this alliance a good thing or a bad thing? Probably a little bit of both. But our desert friends had some good reasons to be suspicious. And, quoting Wikipedia, Around 270 AD, one of the earliest and most prominent desert fathers, Anthony the Great, heard a Sunday sermon stating that perfection could be achieved by selling all one's possessions, giving the proceeds to the poor, and following Christ, from Matthew 19. He followed the advice and made the further step of moving deep into the desert to seek complete solitude. Anthony lived in a time of transition for Christianity, as we have discussed. Those who left for the desert formed an alternate Christian society at a time when it was no longer a risk to be a Christian. The solitude, austerity, and sacrifice of the desert was seen by Anthony as an alternative to martyrdom, which was formerly seen by many Christians as the highest form of sacrifice. The model of these hermits attracted many followers who lived alone in the desert or in small groups. They chose a life of extreme asceticism, renouncing all the pleasures of the senses, rich food, baths, rest, and anything that made them comfortable. Which sounds awful. (laughs) But they're, what they're trying to do here is to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And, and we can question whether that they took that way too far, and some of them did. There's the guy who like sits on top of a post for years and like, come on, dude, what are you doing? But, um, but sometimes you have to go a little bit too far to make the point. I think. So that's, I think we can have some sympathy for them in that. So where are the mothers? Well, unsurprisingly, given the culture, we don't know as much about the women who made it to the desert, but we know they were there, we know they were highly respected as teachers and spiritual directors. Usually, but not always, as widows or um, women who dedicated their lives early and never married. These women would give up whatever wealth they had and dedicate themselves to their religious life, either by starting and joining communities or in a more solitary state. Um, though they sought a depth of a relationship with God apart from society, they were also deeply engaged in ministry through prayer, hospitality, teaching, and being a prophetic presence in the world. Um, and, and some of this is even sort of There's a precedent in the New Testament. Um, Some of the apostles talk about the widows and the important role that they had in the church. And when women were getting married pretty young to men who were older, there were actually a lot of people who were widowed at a fairly young age, and they have to figure out what to do with the rest of their lives. And often um, they would dedicate their lives to God, and they would have their husband's wealth, and they would just kind of give that up. Um, So that's part of what would happen here. So, how about some stories and some names? So, I picked out a few of, of the women that we know about, and I just want to kind of briefly introduce them. So, um, Mary of Egypt lived a life of sexual promiscuity in her youth. Um, she would, like, try to seduce pilgrims to Jerusalem. It was kind of crazy. Um, but she came to repentance, and then she went out in the desert and lived in, like, serious solitude like people didn't see her for years Um, and then a monk with a crazy name I don't know how to pronounce um, is struggling with pride and God leads him to Mary and um, he is humbled by her holiness in a way that he couldn't be humbled by the holiness of any of the male monks around him and so this is sort of an empowering story that like she's a woman who wouldn't normally be looked up to but She's the one who, and she lived a life of sin, and it's her sort of life of repentance that, that humbles him. Also, she's so holy that a lion helps bury her. This is an important, like, sort of narrative theme in a lot of stories, is that, like, the, the beasts submit to the holy people because they're so close to God. Um, so another one of the mothers is Anna Sincletica, could be getting her name wrong. Um, she dedicates her life at a really young age, like as a teenager, um, and she's, and as it comes up often in these stories, she's reluctant to teach others who come and seek wisdom from her, but eventually um, she does gain disciples, and a lot of her sayings are actually preserved, which is cool. There's a book of a whole bunch of sayings from Desert Fathers, and there's three women who get their sayings in there, and she's one of them, um, and she uses a lot of metaf- a lot of metaphors, including some maternal metaphors for Christ, including even like Breastfeeding, which is kind of an awkward metaphor, but I think in that time people were a lot more comfortable with bodies, and they just had to be. It was just life, and so you couldn't sterilize it. So I just thought that was interesting as well. Um, and so there's a grandmother-granddaughter duo who are both named Melania. Um, the grandmother is a widow who has a lot of wealth and starts a community, um, and the younger Melania is married like as a teenager, um, but her and her husband, and it's unclear who thinks this is a better idea, but decide that they're going to live as brother and sister and start separate monastic communities, Um, and again, giving away their wealth um, to the poor and to supporting um, monastic communities. And I think, again, we want to question the idea, like, if you're married, like, it's good to be married. But in this time, it was maybe a questioning of um, the idea that marriage and family is the most important thing, and to be able to say God and ministry are more important than that. Like I think that's what they're trying to say, even if they do it in a way we want to question. Um, another one of the mothers is Sarah of the Desert, who also battles with sexual temptations throughout her life um, and isn't released from temptation, but um, she, she gains a lot of Um, Righteousness just through her battles and continual fighting, and she's she's really sharp-witted, and so she can kind of like outwit some of the the monk dudes who come and try to humiliate her, seem cooler than her, Um, and 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 then writings about her is one of the several references to one of these women being in mind or spirit or holiness equal to a man or basically a man, which at that time was a compliment, and in this time I'm like don 't do that that's that's not she's a woman <laughs> like she's woman enough, but um yeah so but it, it does show that the, in their language they couldn't they couldn't understand respecting a woman, and so they would say she was like a man, but it actually did mean that she had sort of subverted her culture and become wise and and witty enough to be respected um, and the final one is um Macrina, who um, maybe doesn't quite live on the desert, but does live in on the edge of civilization, and she's a sister to two of the most influential Eastern Orthodox theologians. Um, and she's a philosopher who challenges and teaches her brothers, and they really look up to her, even though she doesn't get to write anything and be famous. Like, this is her cool icon where it says, St. Macrina the teacher, and she's holding a picture of her bros. Like, hey, guys, I got this. I, just, I like it. So there's some of... There, just There's some faces and names, um, and I thought that that would be good. Um, so I kind of want to come back to what I talked to you about a little bit before. What were, their, what were the kind of ministries that they, that they took part in, um, both the mothers and fathers? And one of the primary things that they spent their time on was prayer, which makes sense. If you're out in the desert by yourself a lot, you have a lot of time to pray. Um, they prayed to go closer to God because um, there's somewhat of a picture of the desert as a place, kind of like when we think of going out into the wilderness to retreat and meet with God, there's a little bit of that sense, but there's also the sense of the desert being this wild place where, where the demons dwell. And so there's a little bit of attention of their, they're growing closer to God, but they're also having really vivid battles with demons. Um, like think about Jesus going out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Um, it's that sort of picture, um, And they also prayed for one another as they did spend time together in community and for those who came to them seeking wisdom. Um, The other ministry that they would engage in would be hospitality. Those who had money gave it away to the poor or to support their or other communities. And those who did live in the desert would receive visitors with whatever hospitality they had to offer. Um, And they also engaged in teaching. Um, They would be sought out for wisdom. People sort of came to realize that these were people who had had spent time in the scriptures in prayer growing close to god and they would come and and often these people would be like no i'm not that holy leave me alone but people would just be really persistent and say no teach me take me on make me your disciple um and and the women in this way were able to be respected and sought out for wisdom in ways that were kind of countercultural and wouldn't normally happen so that's kind of cool um, and the final ministry, and the one that I wanted to kind of spend a little more time on, is they they served as a prophetic witness in their culture. So they've got this civilization that's crumbling, and a church that's weakening and compromising with the state. Um, they created a city in the desert. sort of. So civilization is falling apart, so they're making a new civilization in a wild place. It's kind of the contrast. Um, where they live in communities, or even if they don't see each other very much, they still are dependent on other people for food and for, like, they would come together for church on Sundays. Um, and this sort of new civilization is dedicated to faithfulness to Christ. Um, and they live in a world that has distorted views about power and money and sex and gender and religion, which doesn't sound anything like our world. And, um, and these are voices out, in the, kind of crying out in the desert, so to speak, um, who renounce their society's values. Um, and women were able to radically redefine their roles and their worth and their purposes in some ways that were empowering in others that we kind of wait on a question. Um, and like in terms of empowering, they were able to have sort of learning and intellectual respect um, and kind of an autonomy that they wouldn't be able to have otherwise. Um, but th- there is that sort of sense that... It, that all makes them become like men, rather than it being something that women can equally share in. And that I think we want to question. And I think um, the sense that to be sort of a single person in the desert is automatically better than being able to serve as a married person with a family is something that we would want to question. Um, And even the ways that the radical level of fasting and Living an austere lifestyle would maybe make it seem like they thought that the world that God created and the bodies that god gave us aren 't aren 't good we don 't want to affirm those things so it's there 's good and bad things, but I think um, the good takeaway is that basically in giving their lives to God, they were able to be Recognized and respected and empowered as women in ways that they couldn't otherwise. And I think that that's a really cool thing. Um, and so, some questions that we can ponder kind of in response to their lives and their stories. Um, where do we make space in our lives to retreat and hear from God, like next week when we're going to church camp? Um, or maybe we go on personal retreats. Um, but do we retreat in order to come back prepared to love others, or do we just go for selfish purposes to kind of, I'm tired and I need to feel closer to God? And I think that that's something that that I have done sometimes, is um, to just feel like my relationship with God is all about me. And... And you can either kind of overemphasize that or overemphasize serving, and these are really things that are meant to go together. And I think that even though the desert fathers and mothers kind of went all the way to the edge of society, they still have a sense that they're doing God's work, and they still are open to ministering to people. And and I think kind of God tends to do that, even like sometimes Jesus would try to retreat and and go away for prayer, and people would follow him, and he would still feed them. He wouldn't say, no, no, leave me alone. Um, those kind of things. Um, another question is, how do we keep a spirit of prayer, hospitality, and humble teaching in the midst of a busy world? And one of the sayings that's preserved from Amma Sincletica is that you can be in a crowd, but you can still have sort of a spirit of communion with God, or you can be out by yourself in the wilderness and have a really crowded, distracted spirit. And so... Like, being somewhere quiet can help, but it's not a guarantee, actually. Um, And the final question is sort of, what prophetic wetness are we called to be in our culture? How do we be in the world but not of it? Probably we're not going to run off to the Yukon and live a life of prayer and solitude. And it it doesn't really make sense in our culture. Like, maybe for some people it does, but I think for most of us it doesn't. But we still we still need to question our world and not run away from it, but engage with it, but stand up against what's being said about gender and about a whole bunch of other, other things. Um, and I think, yeah, I don't know what is, what kind of crazy things might God be calling us to do? I don't know, but it's a question that I feel like is important to ask. Um, so, and I kind of wanted to close as we're coming into communion to kind of bring it all together. Um, these stories and examples from the great cloud of witnesses and from, from the history of the church give us wisdom for how to live, but like we've seen, their answers aren't perfect. So what hope do we have to get this right? And if we go back to Hebrews 12, our hope is that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. The gospel is the story that we're living in, and communion reminds us again and again that as we receive, we receive Christ, we receive forgiveness for the ways that we failed to live out the story, and we receive his grace to live the gospel story as we wait for him to come back and make it all better, which is ultimately the solution, but we live right now. Um, And I also think it's great that communion connects us to the great cloud of witnesses because people have been doing this since the New Testament. People around the world are doing this. Um, I remember there was a summer that I spent a few weeks in South Africa, and I was at church on a Sunday morning in Cape Town, and I just had this kind of almost... Mystical experience of being like of singing like "Send your rain, oh Lord and we 're having communion and like around the world, like millions of people are doing this today and and like we 're like we 're in this together, and even as we partake of christ like we 're in that together, and he brings us together, even if we 're divided in a lot of ways, like god doesn 't see us as divided so i don 't know that 's just something that I thought about there um, and and kind of talking about passing down the story, Paul is passing down the story in First Corinthians when he, he speaks to us about communion. And he says, I receive from the Lord what I delivered to you. And then we've delivered to each other and each other and each other throughout history. That the Lord Jesus on that night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's the story that we're passing down and that we, each in our own context, figure out how do we be faithful to it and, and how does it transform our lives. And one more Google image search for the great cloud of witnesses. I just, I really like this, that it's like all these kind of people who are all focused on Jesus and and remembering his death till he comes so